Oh, Lord, we are so grateful for this day where we can cease from our work, gather together as your people, and rest in you. I pray that this secret path would not be so secret among us here this morning, and that we would discover, rediscover, what the transformed life is for each and every one of us, no matter where we are in our journey with you, so that, oh, Lord, you would be glorified in and through us and the abundant life discovered for each soul gathered here this morning. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last night, Kimmy and I had the pleasure of seeing one of our favorite contemporary Christian bands. You know, in 1995, I was still teaching and coaching. And Four bands came out that year, which revolutionized contemporary Christian music. Up until that time, it was just kind of really cheesy. Jars of Clay came out with a unique sound. DC Talk came out with a unique sound. The Newsboys came out with a unique sound. Third Day came out with a unique sound. It sprung several others that even I had non-believing kids in my weight room that were listening to them. It was kind of a neat era, and it has disappeared quickly. Quickly as it came, it's disappeared. Nobody's replaced these guys since then, in my opinion. That's Gene's humble opinion. But Kimmy and I got to go see the Newsboys last night, and these Newsboys united because the original singer who formed the band in the 80s came back and joined the band, and Michael Tate, the lead singer, who used to be with DC Talk, is now the lead singer of the Newsboys. And it was just great. And if you've ever been to one of their shows, they're so techno. I mean, it's amazing. And so the lights came down. The laser lights are flashing all over the place. The keyboard starts to hum. And Michael Tate, who's the coolest dude in the world, starts to sing. And it dawned on me, in relation to our text this morning, this is how, my, this is how I work. I'm sorry. I apologize. Um, it just dawned on me, this wouldn't work if all of a sudden he started to sing and out of his mouth came Mozart's Don Giovanni. Why wouldn't it work? Because it doesn't, doesn't match. The genre doesn't match the, the, the spectacle. It doesn't match the, the talent of the artist. And vice versa, Michael Tate singing Don Giovanni at Severance Hall wouldn't work either. Although, he'd probably give it the old college try, but it, you know, it takes years and years and years and years of vocal training to sing opera like that. And that's why you've got to pay so much for it. And very few people can do it. In the Christian life, though, it dawned on me, so many people in a similar spiritual way try to sing one song, but they're really believing another. They're attempting to believe one gospel. They say one gospel, but they really believe another. All right? So we're going to look at this together. I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Matthew 21. We're in a series on repentance where we've taken Dr. G.I. Packer's definition of repentance, which is turning from as much as I know of my sin to give as much as I know of myself to as much as I know of God. Thank you, Dr. Packer. It's been a great outline for us, hasn't it? As we have, we've gone after it. It's been hard work, guys. Thank you for hanging in there. I'm glad I have a congregation, you know, because we've discovered really it is 
the most joyful thing in the Christian's life to be repentant, right? And a couple weeks ago, we, we named our prevailing sin. What's that thing which is really inhibiting us from going deeper in the Lord? And last week, through Paul in Romans chapter 6, we learned we take that prevailing sin and we throw it at the foot of the cross as we recognize to be a Christian, you can't be halfway. You're all in or you're not in at all. And we do that in the midst of our current circumstances exactly as we are and we take it before the Lord and we run with it and we look you know and we find that minuscule change in our lives that can have a macroscopic outcome remember that because Jesus as we heard in the opening sentence did not say if anyone would come after me let him ignore your neighbor's leads take up your comfort and follow your dreams he said deny yourself Take up your cross and follow me where the abundant life and satisfaction will truly be found. Right? And so we took that one example, that one minuscule change of the Lord's day. It's kind of the elephant in the middle of the room of the American church right now. In the Old Testament, oftentimes it was the prevailing sin of Israel, which revealed the first three of the Ten Commandments. They weren't obeying those three, but it was shown in the Lord's day. And they dishonored the Sabbath. And the Lord would say, see, you dishonor my Sabbath. And that shows you don't love the Lord, you're, you're committing idolatry, and you're taking my name in vain. And so we took at that in our modern day context, and we said, let's take Saturday night as a time of preparation for the highlight of the week, which is right now, the Lord's day, to not work you get a one-day vacation once a week for 52 weeks out of the year. That's 52 weeks, 52 days of vacation. That's seven and a half weeks of extra vacation for free. The Lord lavishes it upon you. He delights to give you a day of rest. No income earning today, right? And we come together. We get encouraged through the word. We take communion we minister to one another and others as we're given opportunities. And we go home and take a nap. You know? Maybe you watch a game. That's fine as long as you're not worshiping it. Right? You know? We work together on these things. Some of them are a little mucky. I get it. But we work together. But what do we do with Sunday? Yeah, make it another Saturday. That's what we do. You know? Got that project. I got to complete it. If I don't complete it, the world will end. I got to put that faucet in. Got to go to Home Depot. Or Lowe's, right? We do that. Or we let our kids' activities direct our lives away from the Lord's day. And I shared with you how we struggled with that in the Sherman home, and I'm with all families that have to wrestle with that, but I just, just, just work with those coaches. Tell them where you are. And we have an 8 o'clock service, by the way. If the game starts at 11 or 10, 10.30, you can still come to 8 with the uniform on. It's okay. Eight o'clock services for old people who can't sleep and young families that are active. That's what it's there for. <laughs> and they got the same reaction. They go, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's true. We got, we're trying to give options. But the point is that we're ceasing from our work. We're not running around with activity, ignoring the best the Lord would have for us. Now, of course, you're going to have tournaments out of the town. I get that. You're not going to be perfect in that. Lots of grace here. But let's, 
Let's make that minuscule commitment to this time by making sure Saturday night is not where my true worship is. It's Sunday morning. So that's where we left off last week. Today, we're going to do Matthew's text. We're going to get, learn two great truths for us. We get a warning and a promise in Jesus in this text of the parable of the two sons. In Matthew 21, he's, he's, this is Holy Week. He's turned over the money changers, and they want to know, where do you get the authority to do these things that you're doing? That's a legitimate question as far as the chief priests and the elders are concerned, because if you were in their shoes, you would have asked the same thing. What authority do you have? And Jesus, being God, you know, shrewdly says, John's baptism, where did it come from? From man or from God? And he trapped them. They couldn't answer. And they go, we're not going to answer. And he goes, well, not, I'm not going to answer you either. And he immediately goes to this parable to make a point to these chief priests and elders. Because the chief priests are more than likely Pharisees, right? These are the moral men of the day. These are the clean, upstanding, clean-cut 4.0 guys. They know their Bible inside and out, but it's mere religion to them. It's just the trappings of religion. All right? And they think by doing the good stuff, they're saved. There's more than likely some Sadducees in there too, which were the theological liberals of their day. They knew the word. They, they practiced religion, but they didn't believe it. They, eh, God doesn't mean it exactly that way. Have you ever heard that before? All right? And then there's the scribes, I'm sure, and the scribes are kind of the wannabes. It's a good profession. It's a good way to make a living. But they don't necessarily believe it, so they might be a Pharisee-leaning or a, scribe or a, a Sadducee-leaning. So that's the crowd that Jesus brings this parable to that we in Christ church need to make sure we're sitting up and listening because if we get this right, we're going to discover the transformed life. So first, Jesus says in verse 28, what do you think? A man had two sons. He says, go, work in the vineyard. And you get two reactions out of that. We're going to look at the second son first, because I think it's appropriate to do that. Because the second son in verse 30 says, and he went to the other son and said the same. And he, said, and he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. He said, yes, sir. I will go, sir, and he doesn't go. This is a clean-cut lad who looked just like the scribes, chief elders, the, you know, chief priests and elders. He was, you know, he's the type of, of young man that all the old ladies would say, he's such a nice boy. <laughs> you know, he respects his elders. And I can tell you, I come from a yes, sir, no, ma'am culture. I was, we were, it was demanded of us in my home and in my school that you address adults as yes sir, yes ma'am. And I learned real quickly as a teacher in that culture, just because a kid says yes sir doesn't mean he respects you at all. Doesn't mean he's going to do what he, you've asked of him to do. And that's exactly what's going on. And there's a warning in this passage that gives us uh, something that we need to pay attention to. Jesus is warning us of the danger of an empty profession. That you would call yourself a Christian and then go out and live your life however you want to live it. In other words, 
saying you're a Christian is of no value if you do not do what the Lord asks of you. Because what this guy said was very impressive. It was respectful even. But his actions didn't match his profession. And notice what Jesus says. He asked them at the end of this, which son did what the father wanted? Obviously, it wasn't the second son. And Jesus is making sure that what you say lines up with what you do. Because what we do in this community matters, ladies and gentlemen. Our corporate witness is affected by it, as well as the witness to the reality of God. And it's a consistent theme throughout the scriptures. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. That word Lord, Greek kurios, is also the word sir. Not everyone who says, yes, sir, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? Entrance into heaven is not simply uttering words, but it's following the Lord in our day-to-day lives with as much as we know of God. Okay? The Bible gives no assurance whatsoever for a person who professes the Christian faith but does not follow Jesus at all. You can't be saved by your empty words. You can't, and what we're learning here, and it's vital for each and every one of us here at Christ Church, that if we profess the Christian faith, and we continually, knowingly, to sin, you have no reason to believe that you're a true Christian. And you're in the second, same position as the second son. Saying yes to God is of no value if you do not do what the Father asks of you. Now that's a warning to any of us who are good, clean-cut, high-and-tight, moral people. Paul continues that thought in Romans 8.13 where he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Where do we ever get the idea that if we say yes to Jesus, we're eternally secure and show no evidence of that type of life in our day-to-day lives? See, the mark of a true believer is the one who walks in repentance with the Father, and it shows. And, my friends, it's a growth issue. Remember, using Packer's definition of repentance, right? right? We turn from as much as we know of our sin to give as much as we know of ourselves to give as much as we know of God. You know, and as God reveals, we grow into that. It's not perfection. But it's been so cheapened by 21st century American culture. I got confirmed. I was baptized. I gave my life to Christ at Young Life Camp. I walked down the aisle at a Billy Graham crusade, right? I said, yes, sir. And that's all the Christian life is for such people. No bearing fruit. And my friends, that's patently wrong. So this is a warning for us. Thus who would call ourselves Christians. Bible-believing, following Jesus. I deny myself, take up my cross and follow him. I get it. This is a warning for us. I remember vividly Joe Kitts. I was the assistant rector at Truro as a young man. I received Christ as Savior and Lord, 19, 20 years old. And every six to eight weeks, Joe got the pulpit. And it was always great because Joe's a Brit and they sound so cool in the pulpit. 
next to our American accents. You know, and every Brit wants to make America Great Britain again, right? And so Joe, Joe had all these jokes, and it was great, but he was a good preacher, and he encouraged me, and he was a phenomenal evangelist. But when Joe talked, spoke, you listened. And he said these words, and I've remembered them ever since. If you have an unchanged life, you have an unchanged, saved soul, period. That kind of took me back at that young age. Because you're growing in sanctification as a young believer, no matter how old you are. I came to a realization that perhaps some of the things I was still doing wasn't matching up with the profession that I was professing. So I hit my spiritual explorer Magellan experience, and I had to burn the ships of those sins and leave them behind me. You heard, read this morning by Carol, read Isaiah 55. Verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 55 say, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. You see, my friends, when we, when we see our sin, whatever that prevailing sin was a couple weeks ago, when we see it, we forsake it. We turn from it. The whole idea of turning a 180 and run to the Lord. And Isaiah 55, he will have mercy. He's really good at this. Don't doubt him. Run, even when you messed up again. I did it again. That's all right. Go. Run to the Lord. Forsake your sin. Because you can't pursue evil thoughts and receive mercy. It doesn't work that way. God is not willing to forgive that which we're not willing to forsake. Instead, I come to the Lord with all that I am, lay it before Him, and He has promised all throughout Old and New Testament that we lay it down and we say, Lord, I'm not going there again. He will receive us. And even if you've committed that sin time after time after time, you come with that posture and that help, He will transform you. As long as we're willing to let it go and forsake it. You come with that heart. That's the, the second son. But let's look at the first son. What does he say? Verse 28, And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. Verse 29, And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. I will not. I'll tell you, I said that to my dad once. That wasn't going to be pretty. No near ancient, Eastern ancient culture either. It'd be worse than my dad ever would have treated me. They would have taken that grown man out back behind the woodshed and given him a good beating. But Jesus is making a point which would have really grabbed their attention. This young man is obnoxious. This young man is obstinate. He's arrogant and he's disrespectful and yet... Notice what it says. He changed his mind and went. This obstinate son. That word changed, yep, also could be translated repented. Because repentance starts with our minds, friends. It comes to our minds and then it goes to our hearts. He forsook his sin of obstinacy, disrespect, rebellion, 
And he couldn't live with that decision because he knew he'd be out of relationship with the father. He couldn't bear that. He could be out of sorts. with. He loved his dad. He only had one choice. And what this passage is teaching us, and this is the promise that we have, it shows us what you think of God in repentance is the highest form of worship. People who are repentant people are God worshipers. So we get on the path. It shows that we're not hostile to God. It shows that we choose to obey Him even when our first impulse is not to do so. You ever been in that club? Right? And look at the result, verse 31. Jesus looked at them and said, Which of the two did with the will of the Father? They all said, The first. Jesus said to them, so he's speaking to the chief priests and the elders here. And Jesus says these words, Meek and mild, gentle, graceful Jesus. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. You see, he's saying, you chief priests and elders, you won't repent. They did repent. You won't. Because there's a principle here. Those who seem like they got it all together, the moralists of our day, who seem very close to the Lord, aren't close at all. And those who don't have their act together and are willing to admit it, quite frankly, they're real close. It really comes down to our posture to the Lord with this subject, isn't it? Because Jesus is telling us a story of what it is and what it looks like in a believer's life. And those two sons, and the reality is, it shows us what these two sons thought of God the Father. Because the second son's father's words didn't mean very much, didn't carry much weight in his life. You know, and he would carry out the commands as long as they benefited him. But if something else came along more attractive in that it shows he's got an image, he demonstrates to the community what was really going on in his heart, that he wasn't devoted to the Father whatsoever. But the first son, yeah, he's an absolute mess. <laughs> but he repented, changed his mind, and walked in obedience because he thought very highly of the Father. Because repentance is a change of behavior that flows from a change of mind. And this is what occurs in true belief. Now this parable is very similar to the parable of the prodigal son, isn't it? In Luke 15. Very similar. Not the same. It's interesting. It's not the same, but it's very similar. And I think the, the secret to this is the looking at the father whom the first son loves through the lens of Luke 15. Because what happens in the prodigal son? The prodigal son asks for his money. His dad gives him his inheritance. He goes away, squanders it on wild living and women, ends up in working in the pigsty, which is not a good place for a young Jewish boy to work. 
and realizes in his absolute hunger, I'll live better as a slave in my dad's house than I live here. I'm going back home. He starts rehearsing what he's going to say to his father in his mind. He's wondering if the father will welcome back. And where in that parable do you see the father? Standing on the front porch, waiting for the son to return. You see, you will repent when you recognize that the father is waiting for you. That's always the posture of our God, ladies and gentlemen, because that's how much he loves you. It's not about getting your act together. You can be like that first son, because you are, aren't you? Because I am, too. There's days, oh, I'm not going to do that, Lord. Uh-uh. No. Right? Every single one of us have had that experience. And yet he stands and welcomes us back when we say, I can't live without you. I can't live without this relationship i got to move forward, and I need you in it so that I can bear fruit in this community, in this ministry. And I need God's people to help carry this out. God always welcomes us home. And in the parable of the prodigal son, the, the father hikes up his robe, ties it, and runs. Two thoughts. Number one, no patriarch of a family would ever hike up their robes and expose their legs. Two, they would never run. Because it's so undignified. And that's the point. God loves us to run to welcome us back. And that's what he'll do for you. As you take that prevailing sin from two weeks ago, surrender it all, and hop on the path of true repentance. Because you know, those who are really close perhaps aren't so close. And those who are willing to admit they're an absolute mess are in as we repent and follow. Joe Vitale, this week I heard a story. She's a speaker for the Ravi Zacharias team. She also is British and wants to make America Great Britain again. <laughs> she... Uh, she was speaking at the Public Faith Conference in New York last month, and she shared a story from last year in April. Uh, Ravi Zacharias' RZIM speaker teams go to some of the most hostile places you can possibly imagine. So they did an outreach to the University of California, Berkeley, last spring on International Women's Day. So there's all kinds of protests going on. And they're out there, and they've got these events going on. And there's, it's so exciting, Joe said. Uh, but it's, 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 it's kind of nervous. She's kind of nervous, you know, about the, the events that they're doing on the campus that day. But in Cal Berkeley, in the middle of the square of Berkeley, California, was a young woman, shapely figure. She had fishnet stockings on and a miniskirt, and she was topless. And she had a grocery bag over her head with her eyes cut out. And Joe could tell that there was some writing on the bag. So she walked up to get close enough to read the writing. And on the bag was written, my five rapists have all gotten away with it. And she looked at her eyes and they were just haunted with pain. Now, 
these Ravi Zacharias team, they go out as a team. You don't go by yourself. So it's a whole team of speakers that go, and her, her teammate was Madeline Jackson. And I've heard Madeline Jackson. They're all brilliant. They're all just, just off the charts brilliant. I want to be them, you know, type of speakers. And Madeline was ministering to some of the students there, and she looked out, and she saw this woman, and she said, Joe, of all the students that are around here, I identify with her. So she walks up to her, and she begins to engage her in a conversation. And Madeline and Joe thought, what would Jesus say to her? Jesus would say that, and they called her Sophie. Sophie's not her name. Sophie, only God can give you intrinsic worth. Only God will ground your life and your morality. Only God can offer you ultimate justice. And only God through the cross can offer a rescue for you and for the whole world. And give you the life and satisfaction and abundant life that you're looking for. And as Madeline shared this with her, she started to weep. And she threw her arms around her and just hugged her and they held each other. And Madeline led that topless woman in the middle of the square to faith in Jesus Christ. Because she discovered, like Hagar, Genesis, God is the God who looks on you with love. He designed you, loves you with an everlasting love. He's opposed to the evil that each and every one of us have had perpetrated upon us. He's committed to justice for women like Sophie and for people like us. He's committed to suffering alongside her and loved her enough to the cross to make her a new creation in Jesus. That's good news, friends. And that's a real story. It's happening today, and it can happen in each and every one of our lives, turning over as much of our sin to as much as we know of God to as much as we know of ourselves. May it be so. What song are you singing, I ask you this morning? If it's a spiritual rock song, keep it spiritual rock, all right? Let's make it authentic Christianity and not play the games that the culture wants us to play. No matter where you journey, God welcomes you home. That's true repentance, and that's the transformed life. Sophie discovered it. May we each discover it refreshingly anew this morning. Let's pray. Lord, it's an amazing story that you take people, the first son, that say, I will not, and you transform us. You grant us, by the power of your Spirit, true repentance, and we can change our minds and walk with you. Lord, may it be so in each and every one of us this day as we turn our lives to you, because you are the God that gives us intrinsic worth. You are the God who grounds our morality, and, and you look on us with love and are opposed to evil and offer us justice. And you're committed to justice for us. 
And only you, Lord Jesus Christ, through your cross, can offer a rescue of us. No matter where we are, whether we're the religious types or the irreligious types, may you give us true satisfaction and abundant life. Lord, we turn it over to you, all of our lives. All in, we take those prevailing sins and we throw them at the foot of the cross. We ask for your forgiveness. Now may we go and do your bidding in your vineyard. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.